Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Last episode, it was a sultan who was one of the only leaders to fight off the Mongols. This episode, it's Alauddin Khalji, another sultan who fended off the Mongols. Khalji was also a great warrior sultan, and he used his power to greatly expand his empire, the Sultanate of Delhi. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 7, Alodin Kalji, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Alodin Khalji was born sometime in the middle of the 13th century in northern India. His name at birth was Ali Gershasp, the oldest son of a man named Shihabuddin. Alodin's uncle, Jalaluddin, was a soldier-turned-administrator in the Delhi Sultanate. His father, it seems, died young, and Alodin was brought up by his uncle. And that's really all we know about Alodin's youth, so we won't dwell. Now, all of this may sound familiar if you listened to the previous episode, so I'll try to go quickly. The world in the latter half of the 13th century was still dealing with the fallout of the Mongol conquests, or still being conquered by them. Genghis Khan died in 1227, about 40 years before Alauddin was born, and the great Khan's descendants ruled from the Pacific Ocean to the Black Sea. China's Song Dynasty fell in the 1270s. There, Kublai Khan and China's new Yuan dynasty encompassed that and the eastern Mongol lands. The Chagatai Khanate ruled over Central Asia and Transoxiana. The Ilkhanate ruled west from there across Persia as far as Anatolia. But they never established authority in Syria as Baibars and his Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt kept them at bay. The Mongol hegemony was rounded out in the northwest by the Golden Horde, which ruled as far as the lands of the Kievan Rus. The Byzantine Empire was back in place after retaking Constantinople, but most of Anatolia still belonged to the Turks. Further west of there, the kingdoms of Hungary and Poland had been raided by, but eventually were able to push back the Mongol invasions. To their north was the Teutonic Order and the kingdoms of Sweden and Norway. To the west was the Holy Roman Empire, in decline after the death of Frederick II in 1250, as burghers increased their powers, as did the Hanseatic League. France's Philip the Fair succeeded Louis IX when he died outside Tunis, and he began to dismantle the feudal society there as well. Edward Longshanks left the Holy Land in 1272, and by the time he reached England, his father had died and he became king, turning his sights north and west. Spain remained divided among several Christian states, plus Granada in the south. Fragmented successors to the Almohads ruled northern Africa, the Mali Empire ruled large swaths of western Africa, and the Kanem Empire held parts of central Africa. In Ethiopia, the Salamnic dynasty reasserted control of the empire there. 
In the New World, the cultures of the Andes remained fractured as the Incans slowly grew in power. Mayapan was still big, the Aztecs were not yet emerging, and North America saw the peak of ancestral Pueblo and Middle Mississippian cultures. Across the Pacific, in Southeast Asia, the Majapahit dynasty of Java had begun to weaken Srivijaya in Indonesia. West of there, the Bengal region of modern Bangladesh was ruled independently. Southern India was ruled by four large kingdoms, Yadava, the Kakatiya dynasty of Warangal, the Hoysala Empire, and in the extreme south, the Pandyas, who also ruled Sri Lanka. Northern India, west of Bengal, up the Gangetic Plain, through Delhi and up to the Punjab region that feeds into the Indus River, was ruled by the Delhi Sultanate. The Delhi Sultanate had been a Mamluk dynasty that ruled India. As we learned last episode, Mamluks were enslaved Muslim soldiers that had become sort of a class of slave mercenaries in Islamic society. Basically, the Afghani-Iranian Ghurid Sultan had conquered the fractured lands of Delhi and northern India. When he died, his empire fractured as well, and eventually, one of his Mamluk commanders took the reins in his territories and became the Sultan of Delhi. This dynasty ruled until, after 20 years, the Sultan Balban died an old man in 1287. A young, sheltered man, Kaikabad, was next in line and not prepared for absolute power. He led the Sultanate in partying, and soon the leadership of the realm followed suit, no doubt to curry favor. But the administration that his predecessor carefully built began to fall apart. Power devolved to some of the leading nobles of the realm, infighting followed, and his closest advisor, Nizam ud-Din, set about eliminating all his rivals. So it became clear that Nizam ud-Din was becoming unmanageable, even dangerous. And in between drinks, Kaikabad had him exiled from Delhi and eventually killed. With this man who had made himself prime minister gone, there was nobody running the sultanate. Clearly not the sultan who had slipped further into an alcoholic haze. So he appointed his sarjandar, sort of the head of the sultan's bodyguard, as the new minister of war. This man was named Jalal Uddin Khalji, and his role as Sarjandar wasn't exactly ceremonial, but it wasn't like his profession. He was a leading vassal who had already proven himself as a warrior and eventually as governor of the northwestern frontier province of Samana, which bordered the Mongol Chagatai Khanate, which ruled modern Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and parts of western China and northern Afghanistan. Khalji was becoming the new prime minister when the sultan suffered some sort of paralysis and was unable to rule. The nobles of the ruling family, fearful that Jalal Uddin would become sultan, named Kaikabad's young son as the successor, and then started sort of a prescription list of noblemen who weren't Turkic enough ethnically. Jalal Uddin's name was on the list, although there are some arguments about whether or not he actually was Turkic. But anyway, he learned of this and went to rally supporters. The conspirators decided to attack him, but they were beaten. The Khaljis countered by riding to Delhi and nabbing the baby successor sultan. Nobles soon flocked to Jalaluddin Khalji, 
and he had the incapacitated sultan finished off before putting the baby on the throne. This probably didn't last a year, and in 1290, the baby was imprisoned and soon died. Jalaluddin was the new sultan. In his book, History of the Kalji, the well-known and at times controversial historian Kishori Saran Lal refers to this coup as the Kalji Revolution. He opines that this was almost a working-class revolution, And while that seems like a bit of an exaggeration, there is certainly some truth to what he writes. Quote, The Khalji revolt is essentially a revolt of the Indian Muslims against the Turkish hegemony. The revolution resulted in the supersession of a commoner's government over that of the Blue Bloods and shocked to their marrow many a highbrowed Turk to whom other Muslims, Indian-born or otherwise, were made of a stuff inferior to their own. Unquote. Now, let's be clear. The Khaljis weren't necessarily royalty, but Jalaluddin was a powerful man before he took over. However, this was a marked change from a Central Asian Turkic ruling class who looked down on those who were of local origin to a more locally integrated leadership. Jalaluddin had effectively seized the throne, and he did consolidate power, but the crown didn't exactly suit him well. Besides already being perhaps in his 70s, he was deferential to the point of appearing weak after becoming sultan, and soon after, the first major revolt began. Soft in rule perhaps, the new sultan was still strong in war, when the governor of Kara, a region to the east, near the confluence of the Yamuna and Ganges rivers, rose in revolt with an army, Jalal-Uddin marched out to meet them. Among his commanders was his nephew, and son-in-law, Alodin. The rebels were crushed, and the leader fled and was soon captured. But the sultan pardoned them all, and the rebels were allowed to live in luxury. Jalaluddin said he sympathized with their totally logical desire to have someone from the old dynasty in charge again, and he wouldn't want to be responsible for killing believers anyway. He appointed his nephew son-in-law, Alodin, as the new governor of Kara, but no doubt thanks to his leniency, there was soon more trouble. This came at the hands of a religious leader from Persia named Sidi Mala. Sidi seems to have been a sort of cult leader, garnering thousands of followers, including the sultan's eldest son, who was angling for his own position once his father passed on. Soon, nobles flocked to Sidi as an outlet for their own discontent. Either on his own or pressured by them, he became at least the titular head of a conspiracy to declare himself Khalifa, or Caliph, before they assassinated Jalaluddin. The sultan was tipped off, though, and the conspirators were brought before him. Many were exiled while Sidi was executed, stabbed a few times before being trampled by an elephant. So much for leniency. Then, in 1292, the Mongols invaded. Not the hordes of Genghis Khan at this point, nor was it Kublai Khan, who was now the Great Khan, ruling from his winter capital now called Beijing. Rather, it was a grandson of Hulagu Khan, the conqueror of much of Southwest Asia, including Persia and Baghdad, the founder of the Ilkhanate, and the military rival of Baibars. The grandson's grandson was named Abdullah, and he advanced well into India with an apparently massive army. Jalaluddin brought his troops out to defend against the Mongol invasion. 
and two armies faced each other across the Sindh River. Luckily for Jalaluddin, who seemed to have no desire to fight the Ilkhanate, a small contingent of about a thousand Mongol horsemen were captured, and the Sultan used this as a pretext for negotiation. He offered what K.S. Law calls very favorable terms, and a full-scale war was avoided. The Sultan did fight other neighbors. At this point, the Delhi Sultanate was mostly a far northern state. He invaded what is the current state of Rajasthan to the southwest of Delhi and was successful in taking a few cities. Meanwhile, his nephew, Alodin, now the governor of the Kara province, started to receive disaffected nobles in his somewhat distant regional capital. Many of them grumbled about the weakness of the new sultan, and Alodin decided to play a balancing act. Rather than just round up anyone who moaned about the new non-Turkic sultan, he allowed them to stay. But he still remained loyal to his uncle, at least outwardly. Instead, he turned his attention to seeking his own military glory. First, he asked his uncle's permission to attack the city of Bilsa in the Paramara dynasty of Malwa, a plateau in west-central India, just to the south of the Sultanate. He was entirely successful with his surprise raid and carried off significant plunder, as well as the knowledge of another, richer kingdom further south. On the western part of the peninsula, lay the Yavada kingdom, with its capital of Devagiri. It was a powerful kingdom, conquering its neighbors over the previous century. The king at the time had ruled for a quarter century and had prospered, and was a conqueror himself. But he was getting old and complacent. Elodi knew of this kingdom's wealth, and he gathered an army to go and grab some of their loot. According to Lal, Quote, after making adequate preparations, Alodin left Kara for Devagiri with 8,000 horse on 26 February 1296. He kept his real intentions a secret and gave out that he was marching out to the conquest of Chanderi, a Rajput fortress in central India, about 100 miles north of the Vindaya Mountains, unquote. But rather than just marching to this nearby rival kingdom, he kept on going through the Vindaya mountain range. Once he made it to the Deccan Plateau, he couldn't really stay. The kingdoms there were powerful, and he didn't have an army big enough to take them on if they all decided to do something about him. Also, you know, Jalaluddin might have noticed he was gone. The best of Yavada's forces were not available, probably fighting far to the south. It's surmised by some that Alodin actually knew this was going to be the situation. Not far from Devagiri, he fought a battle against a local governor, which was noteworthy for including two women leaders in the army he drew up. It was a hard-fought battle, but Alodin eventually turned the tide and then routed the enemy. He marched on to Devagiri, which Lal describes. Quote, the fortress of Devagiri is situated on an isolated cone-shaped hill 640 feet high. The steepness and height of the rock required a minimum of defenses, but walls, bastions, and a moat cut 50 feet deep into solid rock made up for the little deficiencies left by nature, unquote. However, the lack of preparations did Devagiri in. They hadn't maintained the moat, so it was dry. The fortress wasn't properly provisioned. The king of Yavada went into the fortress to ponder next steps, and Alodin raided the capital city. He also spread a rumor that he was only part of the army that was marching from the Sultanate. 
and the king decided to negotiate a peace treaty. It was in Elodin's interest as well, as he wanted to get what he could and get going back. But before the ink on the treaty was dry, the king's son returned with that missing army. Now the king said he'd honor the terms of the treaty, but the prince ignored that and decided he'd fight anyway. So Elodin left a thousand men to keep up the siege and went out to meet the prince. Outnumbered, Elodin was on the verge of defeat before Nusrat Khan, the commander left in charge of the siege, decided to take his men and join the battle. The Yavada forces may well have thought this was that imaginary army that Elodin had been telling everyone about, finally arriving from the Sultanate. This changed the course of the battle, and Elodin's forces were victorious. The next treaty Elodin secured from the king, still inside the fortress, was much more advantageous to the invader than the previous one. After a little under a month in Devagiri, he was gone, marching back to Kara, much richer. What was he to do with all these funds? Well, when he got back, Uncle Sultan learned about the little adventure, and of course, he was thrilled. Jalaluddin was advised to meet his nephew on the return march. Alodin should give the Sultan all the spoils of war, and if he did so, he should be allowed to march to Delhi in a triumphal procession. Otherwise, he was now richer than the Sultan. He had already invaded a territory without any sort of permission. It was a recipe for trouble. But Jalaluddin would have none of it. He raised Elodin. He loved him and he trusted him. Elodin wrote to his uncle when he returned to Kara, reassuring him of his love and loyalty. And he promised he'd be sending all those treasures to him. But it was a lie. Whatever he was doing before, Elodin was now officially plotting. He knew his time was limited, that sooner or later he'd have to give up all this treasure and all those troops he was surely paying. So he wrote to his brother, Almas Beg, who was at court, and told him that he was beside himself with shame for betraying the sultan, and was thinking of committing suicide. The only way he might be convinced to go on would be if Jalaluddin came personally to Kara and brought him back to court himself. The foolish old sultan believed it all wholeheartedly. He marched with a thousand men toward Kara. Elodin marched out himself, to a spot beyond a swollen river that the sultan's troops wouldn't be able to easily get to from the direction they were marching. Almas Beg convinced the sultan to cross the river to meet his nephew. It's said that he even convinced the two boats of men to come unarmed, so as not to frighten Elodin, who was afraid he was going to be punished for that invasion. Again, this aroused everyone's suspicion, except for the sultan. When they reached the other side, Elodin kneeled before him. You have nothing to fear from me, sweet nephew, said the sultan. I raised you from birth. You're like one of my sons. I'd never harm you. And then, as they began to walk toward the boats, a signal was given, and assassins cut the sultan down, killing him and his entourage. And so it was, in July of 1296, that Elodin had his sweet, loving, and utterly naive uncle killed, and became the new sultan by way of having a huge army, a ton of money, and probably quite a few leading nobles of the sultanate in the awkward position of either accepting him as sultan or losing their own heads. Of course, the sultan's sons, Elodin's cousins, were still at the capital, and Elodin's hated mother-in-law 
proclaimed her youngest son as the new sultan, with her as the regent. This was a mistake because as Alodin marched toward Delhi, an older son, Arkali Khan, who was a well-regarded general, wondered why the heck she was ignoring his claim to the throne. So, about 300 miles west of Delhi in Multan, in the southern Punjab, the man who was most likely to be able to stop Alodin stayed put. Alodin marched through heavy rains to Delhi. He wasn't afraid to throw gold around, which didn't hurt in terms of making and keeping friends. The men who had been sent out to stop him saw his army swelling, and they went over to his side. Delhi was mostly on his side, and so the queen sent a desperate message to Arkali Khan saying she had made a terrible mistake, that he should be the sultan, and to come, like, right now. He wrote back basically saying there was no longer an army for him to lead there. Everyone had already gone over to the other side. Why should he come now? Alodin heard about this response and he, quote, ordered the drums of rejoicing to be beaten, unquote. The old sultan's youngest son set up in Delhi to do battle, but when his left wing deserted him, he fled the capital. On October 20th, 1296, Alodin entered his new capital. More wealth spreading followed. Plenty of new titles were given out to nobility. Sultan Alodin had secured his throne, although Arkali Khan was, for the moment, ruling the southern half of the Indus River Valley, and he'd have to deal with him and his other cousins. So he sent a force led by some of his most trusted men. He didn't go himself because, I mean, he had just usurped the throne, and he didn't want it to be double usurped or anything like that. But in November, a force set out for Multan to end any sort of, you know, rule by the actual heirs to the sultan. The city was besieged, and while it may have lasted longer, the city leaders were not so into it. Arkali Khan was forced to negotiate a truce. By early 1297, they had been received with all proper dignity by the invading army. And not long after that, they were blinded, and then executed. It was about this time that the Mongols started attacking. Their internal squabbles as the great empire broke apart had kept them mostly out of India. They launched a few invasions during the reign of Balban, but they seemed to have been more of a quick-hit raid variety. Jalaluddin had faced them with a massive army and bought them off. But this time, Dua Khan of the Chagatai Khanate in Transoxiana sent a massive army south to start adding India to places devastated by the Mongols. A hundred thousand Mongol soldiers, supposedly, in late 1297, invaded the Punjab, the vast plain on the northwestern part of the subcontinent, where the major river systems that flow into the Indus River from the mountains to the north lay. They laid waste to Lahore and to the surrounding region. Alodin sent his brother Almas Beg, now called Ulug Khan, as well as another loyal general, Zafar Khan, with an army. They met the Mongols in 1298 and defeated them, taking 20,000 prisoners. This was kind of a big deal for the new sultan. The next year, Alodin sent a large army to conquer Gujarat, a region located on what is now the northwest coastline of India, southeast of Pakistan. The kingdom there, ruled by the Vagela dynasty, was not a powerful one, but it had robust maritime trade, 
and was a fertile agricultural region. Ulug Khan led the expedition, coming from the northwest, the lower Indus River, with maybe 30 or 40,000 men. The Raja there was taken by surprise, and the invaders easily took the region. They were not merciful, sacking, looting, or destroying many towns and temples. They sacked the wealthy port of Cambai, and the looting included a slave named Kafir, who we'll get to later. While this was happening, the year 1299 also saw two more Mongol invasions. The first was in Sindh, the southern Indus region, where they took the city of Siwan. Zafar Khan was dispatched with an army, because the rest of the army was in Gujarat, but he besieged the city and recaptured it. It was notable because he took it basically through running up and attacking rather than using the standard trebuchets or siege towers of the time. He was so successful, in fact, that the sultan began to get a little jealous or suspicious or whatever it is men of ultimate power do when they find someone else is getting glory. The sultan wasn't sure whether to have Zafar Khan poisoned or send him east to conquer Bengal. But the other Mongol invasion of that year followed on the heels of the first one. Duwa, the Mongol Khan, is said to have been so angry that he raised an army of 200,000, if you can believe it, led by his son Kutlug Khwaja. They marched straight to Delhi, ignoring the towns and cities on the way. The army was undoubtedly large because while the Sultanate's frontier forces harassed them along the way, they dared not engage. With Delhi threatened, Alodin was able to gather a massive force himself, and probably outnumbered the Mongols, whatever the numbers truly were. It is recorded that Alodin's uncle suggested he negotiate, pay them off, perhaps flee, but not face the Mongols head-on in a massive battle, which had basically been suicide for every king over the last century. But Alodin responded that if he fled, he'd lose his kingdom anyway because he wouldn't be able to hold power after doing something so shameful. He announced publicly that he planned to go out and fight the invaders himself. And so, at Kili, only a few miles outside of Delhi, the two armies met. Alodin wanted to wait a bit, hoping for even more of his own forces to show up. But Zafar Khan was restless and wanted to fight. He charged with his men without orders and sent the Mongols fleeing. However, this was probably just a feigned retreat, a typical Mongol tactic, and Zafar Khan found himself cut off from the rest of the Indian army. And whether it was because they didn't like him and all the glory he received, or because he hadn't followed orders, no reinforcements were sent in to extricate his thousand or so horsemen that had overextended themselves. They decided that even if they cut their way back to their own lines, they would be punished. So, better to die defending the homeland. They faced down the main Mongol army and attacked. Law writes, quote, The result of the impending battle was a foregone conclusion. The Mughals encircled the royal forces and delivered fatal blows on them. Nonetheless, Zafar Khan was successful in breaking the encirclement. He fought here, there, and everywhere, but still no help was forthcoming either from the Sultan or Ulug Khan. The battle raged fiercely, and if Sami is to be believed, when 5,000 of the Mughals had been killed, Zafar had only lost 800 men. With the remaining 200 horsemen, Zafar Khan fought on till the last, unquote. This ferocious fighting by a thousand desperate men was enough to convince the Mongols they didn't want to see what the rest of the Sultan's army could do. They turned and retreated back to the Khanate, 
and Elodin had killed two birds with one stone, as not only did he turn back a massive invasion, his rival had been killed. Zafar Khan's name was not mentioned in the Chronicles of the Battle for the rest of Elodin's lifetime. Elodin was harsh with other leaders as well, eventually imprisoning or blinding most of the former administration, even though they had accepted him as the new sultan. One of the results of this, whether intentional or not, was to transition the leadership of the sultanate to an Indian rather than a Turkish aristocracy. And of course, this new aristocracy was completely loyal to Elodin. At some point after all these victories, he grew tired of putting references to being the Khalifa on his coins, and instead styled himself as Sikander Sani, Alexander II, as he viewed himself as great a conqueror as Alexander. He looked again to the south to expand his kingdom, and in 1301, he sent a force to attack Ranthambore, a fortress in the Rajput region to the south of Delhi. The Raja refused to give up refugee leaders that had fled to his lands, and the army of Delhi attacked. In the ensuing battle, Nusrat Khan, one of Alodin's leading generals, was hit with a projectile and killed. His camp went into mourning, and the Rajputs used that moment to attack, pushing back Ulug Khan and ending the siege. Of course, the Sultan could not stand for this, so he decided he'd have to join the army and lead it himself. But first, he was assassinated, or an attempt on his life was made by a nephew during a hunt. Elodin was hit with an arrow, and his loyalists proclaimed that he had been killed. The nephew rushed to the throne and sat down, naming himself the murderer of the old sultan. Long live him, the new one. Except the old sultan was still actually alive. He had been knocked unconscious. His guards made sure he was okay, and fearing who might be in on the conspiracy, and that perhaps this was a rebellion, Elodin first thought to rush to the safety of his brother Ulug's camp post-haste. But an advisor stopped him, saying that if people in his own camp saw he was alive, they'd quickly kill the usurper. But if he fled, then there might be a real rebellion. He stayed, and the nephew was the one who soon had to flee. Although he didn't make it very far before he was caught and beheaded. Elodin then reached his brother Ulug with a full army, and the two of them marched to Ranthambore, besieging it once again. They had little success in breaching the defenses, but eventually the food inside ran out. I mean, that's the whole point of the siege anyway, right? The people inside gave up all hope, and so, as was apparently not atypical for the time and place, the women threw themselves onto a fire while the men rushed out to kill as many invaders as possible. They fought bravely, but most all were killed before the sultan's army ransacked the fortress city. Ulug Khan was given the fortress and its surrounding area to rule, but he died only a few months later. Poisoning is suspected by some, as the sultan was certainly the poisoning-his-brother type of ruler, but some sources say he did go into deep mourning after Ulug's death. Natural causes of some sort are probably likely, but not the only possibility. In early 1303, Elodin, now without his brother and lead general Ulug, led an army out to attack Chitor. Chitor was the lead city and fortress of another Rajput kingdom, or sub-kingdom, to the south of Delhi, again easily accessible from Sindh and the lower Indus. It was a massive fort carved out of rock, and the Delhi Sultanate's siege weapons had no effect on it. The city held out for eight months. 
Finally, because of starvation or disease or despair, the women threw themselves onto a pyre and the men threw themselves onto the invaders, as what happened at Ronthambor. Despite Alodin's victory, direct rule in Chitor proved too difficult, and he ended up allowing a local Hindu ruler to act as his vassal in the city. The Mongols, meanwhile, again decided it was time to try and spread their Khanate into India. Another massive army invaded and marched directly to Delhi. Alodin's army had just concluded an eight-month siege and had to up stakes and head out to defend their capital. They were not exactly in peak fighting shape at this point, which of course was the whole point of the timing of the invasion. Outnumbered and exhausted, he set himself up in the fort of Siri, one of several he had built to defend Delhi. He was well fortified in a strong defensible position, but there was one problem. He couldn't really defend Delhi. The Mongols attacked, but couldn't get past his fortified lines, which included armored elephants. So they went around, and they plundered Delhi, because Alodin couldn't come out and defend Delhi itself. After a couple months, though, the Mongols, who were not actually prepared for a prolonged siege, and couldn't do much against the Sultan himself, returned to Central Asia. Alodin realized he had been lucky, even if Delhi had been ransacked. He decided that, first, he wouldn't go gallivanting around India, he would send trusted generals to do that, and second, he would fortify the northwest border to defend against invasions from the Khanate. He upgraded fortifications there, and garrisons were increased. In 1305, he decided to invade Malwa, the kingdom ruled by the Paramara dynasty, where he first went to seek glory and riches without telling his uncle. This time, though, he sent one of his generals to attack and selected 10,000 assumingly elite cavalry to go. They first encountered the kingdom's commander-in-chief and killed him during a muddy and bloody battle. The king, Malakdeva, fled to the city of Mandu. The invading army didn't immediately chase him. Rather, first they pacified northern Malwa and began incorporating the land into the sultanate. Then they marched on and defeated Malakdeva's son in a battle outside of Mandu and then besieged the city. The city was betrayed to them and they captured it, killing the king during his attempt to flee. They quickly subdued other cities in the region, and the Malwa kingdom, as well as a route to southern India, was now under Alodin's control. In 1305, the Mongols invaded again, bypassing the first fortresses in the Punjab, which were defended by Malik Nayak. He figured they were headed to Delhi and marched there to help out, but they also bypassed the now heavily fortified capital, right to the fertile lands between the Yamana and the Ganges. Alodin sent Malik Nayak with a force of 30,000 cavalry. We don't have details of this battle, but the forces met in the Gangetic Plain, and the Mongols were crushed. 20,000 were killed, the rest captured, including the generals who led the invasion. The following year, the Chagatai Khan Dua sent a force bent on revenge. Crossing the Indus River, they looted and pillaged the country. Malik Kafir, the slave captured in Kambai, led the army. This army met part of the Mongol force on the Ravi River, one of the five main tributaries of the Indus. Initially, neither side wanted to advance. Eventually, the Mongols charged and scattered Kafir and his men in the center. But Kafir rallied and sent the Mongols running. They defeated the invaders, taking many back to Delhi in chains. 
The rest of the Mongol army was soon located, and they fled at the sight of the Indians, understanding that much of their force had already been defeated. But they were soon overtaken and captured as well. And that was it. The Mongols stopped invading. Too many expeditions had tried to attack India and just never returned. In fact, the Delhi Sultanate began making incursions into the Khanate, raiding border cities and keeping them further at bay. After Dua's death in 1306, civil wars prevented any more incursions, and the Sultan, in addition to fortifications he built throughout the route from Transoxiana to Delhi, had a professional, organized, large, well-paid army. Thanks to the efforts of Alodin, Mongols, or more precisely, Turco-Mongols, were kept out of India for nearly a century until Timur, Tamerlane, entered. Alodi next turned his attention to Sawana, and in 1308, he went himself to attack this Rajput city, which exerted control to the southwest of Delhi. Yet another seemingly impenetrable hilltop fortress was besieged, and after three months, they built an artificial earthen ramp which allowed them to scale the walls and take the fortress. By the end of the decade, he had also captured the city of Jalore, greatly expanding the Sultanate's domain by essentially taking all of northwest India. Law calls it Rajputna, or Rajasthan, roughly corresponding to the modern Indian state of the same name. He did this through prolonged sieges, sometimes of six months or more, against these mountaintop fortresses. It was just these fortresses, Law suspects, that allowed their defeat. They all felt safe, and therefore, there was no unity in the region allowing Alodin to pick each major city apart one by one, while the others stood by, safe behind their own walls, at least safe until Alodin turned his attention to them. If they had worked together, the armies of each Rajput chief could probably have broken up the sieges against the other, but their disunity and Alodin's obstinance did them in. Law writes, quote, By the end of the first decade of the 14th century, Sultan Alodin had accomplished the conquest of almost the whole of northern India and had checked the tide of Mughal aggression, unquote. So what was next? Conquest of the Deccan, or the south of India, of course. It wasn't united or stable, but it was extremely wealthy, as attested by Marco Polo in his visit there on the way home from China just a decade or so before in the 1290s. In 1308, Alodin sent Malik Kafur to take on the four kingdoms of the Indian peninsula, starting with Devagiri, that site of his original Deccan raid. The king there, Ram Chandra, had stopped paying his annual tribute and needed to be properly persuaded to continue. He offered little resistance to the onslaught of the sultan's troops, however, and was brought to Delhi after negotiating a truce. He was allowed to return as a vassal king. In late 1309, Malik Kafur was ordered to go to the next state on the path south, the Kakatiya dynasty's kingdom in the region of Telangana. Alodin gave instructions to his general that they were going into alien land. He should cooperate with his fellow generals and be lenient on the troops under most circumstances, harsh when they transgressed. He marched through the now vassal kingdom of Yadava, Ram Chandra giving his army assistance on the way through. They entered Kakataya territory and quickly surprised and overran a frontier fortress before making their way to the capital of Warangal. 
The siege began in late January 1310. Malik Kafour was warned not to ask for too much in negotiations with the king there, lest he be convinced to resist for a long time, and not to bring him back to Delhi, as that, coupled with a surrender, would perhaps cause a revolt against someone the sultan was envisioning as a vassal. First, the outer earthen fortress was breached, and the siege continued on the inner stone fortress where the king Pratap Rudra Deva sat. The siege wore on, and supplies ran low. Law writes, quote, When the siege had been sufficiently prolonged and the condition of the people inside the fortress had become very critical, Pratap Rudra Deva made overtures to Malik Kafir with terms of a truce. He promised to present treasures, precious stones, elephants, horses, and other valuable articles and also to send yearly tribute of the same value to Delhi. He also sent a golden image of himself with a golden chain round its neck to symbolize his humility and unconditional surrender, unquote. This was exactly what Alodin had asked for, so Kafir played tough guy a little bit and asked for more, which Pratap Rudra accepted. The accumulated treasures of centuries of rule were given to the sultanate in exchange for the privilege of vassalage likely including the Koh-i-Noor, a 105.6-carat diamond that was subsequently esconded with several more times, first by Babur as he established the Mughal Empire in India, and then, after a few more times, by the British, who made it part of Queen Victoria's crown jewels. Kafir returned with what was said to be a thousand camels weighed down with treasure. But he was not to stay for long, and in November of 1310 set out again with an army, this time to the Hoysala Kingdom in southwest India. King Virabalala III had returned from fighting the Pandyas in time to defend his capital of Dwarsamudra. But there was no battle. He saw the might of the invading army firsthand, having already known of it from Yadava and Warangal's surrender, and he too agreed to give up a whole lot of gold and jewels, keep his head firmly attached to his neck, and become a vassal to Alodin. Rather than returning home, Malik Kafir made straight for Pandia, the southernmost kingdom on the subcontinent. Balala, the newest vassal king, who had recently made the trip himself, accompanied them on the journey. But the journey was somewhat anticlimactic. Malik Kafir chased the king around the country, and although he plundered quite a few cities, he was never able to catch him. Added to this were constant rains that hampered his army's march through the country. Eventually, in April, Kafir gave up, took his tons of loot, and headed back to Delhi. He arrived six months later, in October. Thanks to his army, led by Malik Kafir, but certainly with other prominent generals as well, Alodin had basically subdued the entire Deccan, almost the whole of the Indian peninsula, more or less. King Balala also accompanied the march back to Delhi, and was given honors, titles, and glory as a loyal vassal. Malik Kafir was asked to return to Devagiri the following year, in 1313, to crush a rebellion by the son and successor to the Yadava king. And crush it he did, after which he was asked to stay and govern the territory. The rest of the territories remained nominally independent kingdoms, vassals asked to pay tribute, but not directly governed by the sultanate. Law writes of the territory south of the Vindaya Mountains, quote, Alodi never meant to annex this far-off land beyond the Vindayas. For him, his southern expeditions were financial ventures. His mobile forces swooped down upon the southern kingdoms, denuded them of their wealth, and then came back triumphantly, unquote. 
Law goes on to note that Alodin didn't want to repeat the constant rebellions in Rajaputna, that area to the southwest of Delhi, so he never tried to take true control. Just go in, take your money, and go home. Despite all these great conquests and all the glory Alodin had brought the Sultanate, the Sultanate itself was weakening. Alodin was aging fast, his health was failing, and he had centralized the power of the state to the point that it could not run without his hand in everything. He became paranoid, and even more ruthless, somehow. His army now had a large contingent of Turco-Mongol warriors, but many were basically destitute, and some sort of rebellion was planned. Alodin discovered it, and his response was to have twenty to 30,000 Mongols in his state murdered. The vast majority would have had no idea of any sort of plot against the sultan, innocent victims of a real plot, and a ruler sinking more and more into tyranny. The sultan's reputation was further tarnished by his attachment to Malik Kafur. Kafur had complete control over the sultan and began eliminating his rivals. Some were stripped of their titles, others were assassinated. Most significantly was the murder of Alp Khan, the competent and popular governor of Gujarat, who was the brother of the queen, or the leading queen, or whatever. Kafur tried to get Alodin to charge Alp Khan with something and have him put to death, but the sultan knew this man was loyal. So despite his devotion to Kafur's advice, he refused to do anything. So Kafur just had him killed one day. The sultan was in such poor health at this point that Kafur was basically in charge anyway. There was nobody left to punish him. He then imprisoned the king's eldest son. It took him several tries, but he finally got a week, perhaps mentally incapacitated at this point, Alodin, to tearfully send his son away. The army in Gujarat, meanwhile, rose in rebellion over loyalty to their commander, Alp Khan. It was in this miserable state that Alodin finally died in January of 1316. Malik Kafur was able to put Alodin's six-year-old son on the throne as a puppet, bypassing the oldest and heir apparent. Kafur began to rule behind the scenes with an iron fist. He had the two oldest sons of Alodin blinded in his first few days of rule. More sons were imprisoned. But his rule did not last very long. After about a month, he had sent for one of the imprisoned sons, Mubarak Khan, to be blinded as well. Some chroniclers say the soldiers went to do the deed, and he showed them his necklace, reminding them of their duty to the sons of the great sultan, and they left to go kill Kafir. Others believe they just decided on their own that Kafir should die. Either way, they killed him. The nobles then asked Mubarak, a well-respected prince, to become regent for the six-year-old sultan. He refused at first, but eventually relented. It wasn't long, though, until he decided his position as regent was too precarious and blinded his younger brother and became sultan himself. The Khalji dynasty was not to last long, though. Mubarak was assassinated in 1320, and one of the generals that had served the dynasty for decades led a coup against the usurper, founding the next dynasty. The sultanate lasted in one form or another until Babur swept in from Central Asia in 1526 and founded the Mughal Empire. Alodin accomplished quite a great deal during his reign. He held off the establishment of a Mughal or Mongol Empire for about 200 years. He solidified sultanate control over most of the Indo-Gangetic plain, from the Punjab in the northwest, through Delhi, and down the Ganges, although not quite as far as Bengal. He took most of central India, 
and also lands to the southwest of Delhi, such as Gujarat, although he never truly controlled all of Rajasthan. He obtained vassalage, or at least tribute, from the entire Deccan, although he never actually held most of this. He was incredibly vindictive, harsh, and brutal, inflicting terrible cruelties on large groups of enemy soldiers, civilians, and on close allies, including his own uncle, who he murdered to obtain the throne. He was certainly a cruel tyrant, but there was a practicality to his reign despite his brutality. It became safe to travel across the Sultanate, as long as you didn't anger the Sultan, I guess. And despite his stated desire to spread Islam, India was too religious and too populated to wage a constant holy war against its inhabitants. Law wrote that, quote, a loading thought that religion had nothing to do with politics, unquote. He ruthlessly reduced the nobility in power and numbers, which was only one part of his work to reform the Sultanate. He enacted fiscal reforms, and he abolished the traditional system of land grants. He reformed the military, maintaining a standing army of nearly 500,000 cavalry, according to contemporary chroniclers. And these were professional soldiers, not peasants pressed into service. He was also a great patron of the arts, and literature especially flourished during his reign. He turned the Sultanate from a large regional power into the dominant power in all of India. Historian N.C. Banjeri writes that he was, quote, a great conqueror, a consummate general, and an able administrator, unquote. And this is true for sure. But let's turn to Lal one last time. Quote, ascending the throne at the age of 30, he had reached the apogee of power at 45 through unrivaled skill, studied tact, and phenomenal energy. From nothingness, he rose to be one of the greatest rulers of medieval times. With the help of a strong and disciplined army, he pulled down native princes and stamped out sedition from the land. By a systematic tariff policy, he controlled the fluctuating market and with an efficient administrative machinery, effectively governed the country for two decades, unquote. Alodin Kalji was a great soldier in general. When his successes brought him enough power and wealth to become a threat to the sultan, he ruthlessly seized power and made himself sultan. From there, he created an empire out of a relatively small sultanate, turning it into a world-class power, forcing back numerous Mongol invasions, and ruling over most of India. Next episode, we'll move forward, not too far, to the latter half of the 14th century, but we'll move north and west to discuss a powerful queen who helped lead a resurgent kingdom and unite multiple kingdoms into one. Thanks for listening.